Welcome to Repro's Fight Back, a podcast on all things repro. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and each episode I will be taking you to the front lines of the escalating fight over our sexual and reproductive health and rights at home and abroad. Each episode, I will be speaking with leaders who are fighting to protect our reproductive health and rights to ensure that no one's reproductive health depends on where they live. It's time for Repros to fight back. Welcome to Repros Fight Back. In our last episode, we um, zoomed in and talked about New York's Reproductive Health Act. This week, we're going to zoom out and talk about abortion access and reproductive health care nationwide and what it looks like now and what states are doing to fight back. And I couldn't think of two better people to talk to me about this than Elizabeth Nash and Megan Donovan from the Guttmacher Institute. Hi, ladies, and thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you for having us. So excited to be here. Yay. Seriously. So before we get started, I think it's really important to take a second to introduce yourselves so that people know who's talking when you're talking. So hi, I'm Elizabeth Nash. I work on state policy stuff at the Guttmacher Institute. And hi, I'm Megan Donovan. I work on abortion access at the federal level at Guttmacher. So we'll start at kind of the basic lay of the land. What does abortion access look like right now in the States? Abortion access looks very different depending on where you live. It depends on not only your state and your community, but your familial situation. But if we're looking at the states, just imagine a map of the United States in your head and think about particularly the lower 48, where you can see that abortion restrictions really spread across the South, the Midwest, the Plains, and where we see access not so impacted, where in fact there are positive things happening. We're really looking at the West Coast and the Northeast, and it got a little bit of Illinois in the middle there. So access looks pretty wide-ranging and varied depending on policies. But also, if you look within a state, you're also thinking about divides such as urban and rural where in a city you may have more access. And then it also depends very much on your own familial and social economic circumstances, right? So people who have resources have access to health care while others don't or have access to finances while others don't. And I would just want to say that really since 2011, the whole state legislative landscape has changed so much across really the lower 48. And it's been everything from restrictions that impede access to total bans. The important thing to know is as that has been going on, we're now seeing a lot of pushback as your last podcast was all about New York and thinking about um, what other states are doing in that way. That's a great preview. So what happened last year? We saw from 2011, we saw so many attacks at the state level, but things started to change a little bit last year and maybe for the better. That's right. So I'm going to jump in and maybe talk about a couple of things that um, happened last year that were sort of game changing at kind of the federal and the national level. Um, The first, of course, is that uh, Justice Kavanaugh's ascension to the Supreme Court you know, tipped the balance of the court against abortion access and abortion rights uh, and really put Roe v. Wade at risk in a even more tangible way um, for the first time. The other thing, though, I want to highlight in contrast to that is the outcome of the midterm elections. There's now a majority of members in the House of Representatives that are supportive of abortion rights. 
there are more women in the halls of Congress than ever before. And while there's still work to be done, uh, Congress is more diverse than it has been. Those things are not a coincidence, right? You know, the electorate uh, took note of what's been going on in recent years and uh, took a stand for change. And so that's a really important backdrop that kind of undergirds a lot of, you know, what we'll be talking about, especially as we look ahead to um, what we're seeing start to happen. And at the state level in 2018, we saw some of these similar changes. We saw a few states become more moderate in their legislatures, but we also saw some very conservative lawmakers be returned to their seats and in some governorships. And throughout 2018, that was in the elections at the end of 2018, but during 2018, what was really significant about abortion policies at the state level was that And I hate to say only, but only 23 abortion restrictions were enacted, which is a real change from what we'd been seeing in earlier years. And sort of the kicker on the end to that is that some of these restrictions are incredibly extreme. Six-week abortion ban in Iowa was enacted. Fifteen-week abortion bans were enacted in Louisiana and Mississippi. Now, none of those are in effect, but really what it seemed to be doing is – anticipating somehow changes at the Supreme Court. And so really also keying in to some themes that we're going to, we're seeing in 2019. But at the same time, we're seeing momentum in the other way. So we saw Washington require abortion coverage. We saw Massachusetts repeal its pre-row abortion law. And then we saw other states look around to contraceptive coverage and sex education in a really positive way. I I really choose to see the the hope of states doing good things, mostly because we so often are focused on fighting these just terrible fights to, you know, stop six week bans or, like you said, fifteen week bans or seventy two hour waiting periods, which just is such a slog. Sometimes it was so great to see for once that the positive was uh, outnumbering the negative. Yeah, no, it was great to see that we had so many more positive um, laws go into effect, and it was everything from those abortion um, protections to the contraceptive coverage pieces to expanding Medicaid and family planning to requiring teen dating violence education um, and consent education in sex ed. So, and so those are just even the tip of the iceberg really on the number of 80 new proactive laws that were enacted. So what are states doing to protect access in light of all these threats that we're seeing to Roe v. Wade? Well, there are you know, sort of two big buckets to start off with, and then there are a bunch of other kinds of protections that could be put in place. Um, so one big bucket is the um, idea to set a legal standard. So very much in the vein of what happened in New York in January. Um, as well as, you know, we also saw something similar in Oregon in 2017, where it went a little further even than New York and simply affirmed the right to abortion throughout pregnancy and prevents government interference in abortion. So we're seeing those kinds of moves in states, right? So we're seeing other states looking to Oregon and New York, states like Massachusetts, New Mexico, Illinois, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, 
all of these states are looking to protect abortion rights. And obviously some of this momentum is because we have seen the change at the U.S. Supreme Court level, and those legislators are, lo- are looking out for their own citizens. But in, the other, in another way um, states could be looking to protect abortion rights might sound a little counterintuitive, but it's about repealing restrictions. And looking at what kind of barriers are in your state and repealing them. And I'd like to mention that some of these repeal bills, as well as some of the protect abortion bills, are pending in some pretty hostile places like Texas, Indiana, Missouri, Arizona. So these are places where the conversation hasn't really shifted and the legislature isn't really with us, but it's a way to start that conversation. It is important to have that conversation because a lot of these um, restrictions are causing women to have to wait longer to have abortions. It's making it harder, uh, not just for them to get access, but for when they get access. So, you know, if they have a bunch of hoops to jump through, they might not be able to get an uh, early medication abortion like they might prefer. And, you know, all of a sudden they get pushed into a later abortion than they would maybe choose to have. There are lots of ways that states can look to um, protecting abortion rights and really, you know, Megan here has written some incredible pieces about the various ways that abortion can be provided in um, to meet the needs of patients. Yeah, I think there are a ton of things that, you know, additional things that states can do to um, protect and expand access to care. And one way of thinking about um, several of these things is to take steps to ensure that um, abortion care can uh, you know, change and adapt as the rest of medical care and the field moves forward and advances. So a couple of things I would highlight in that regard uh, include taking steps to allow advanced practice clinicians uh, like nurse practitioners um, and certified nurse midwives to provide abortion care. Another thing would be to um, take steps to allow and support telemedicine provision of medication abortion. That's a safe and effective way of providing medication abortion. And if you think about all the different ways that people are increasingly using telehealth to access health care, it just makes sense that we would be also, you know, using that as a tool to expand access uh, to abortion care. Uh, And a third thing in that vein would be that states could also take action to create a safe, you know, legal and policy environment for self-managed care. Jenny, you and I had the opportunity to talk about that in greater detail uh, recently, so maybe I'll refer folks back to that podcast for more information. But the point here is that no one should ever be punished for seeking to end a pregnancy. And while... um, there seem to be there seems to be minimal uh, health or safety risks associated with self managed medication abortion. The risks of criminalization, on the other hand, are quite high. And so states can be taking efforts to you know clean up uh, the laws on their books uh, that have been used to prosecute um, and target people who have um, tried to self manage their care. And they can also do things to educate uh, their community, law enforcement officials, and uh, the broader healthcare community so that people uh, have a supportive rather than a punitive response to self-managed care. Yeah, that feels really especially important right now. I mean, we're looking at, what is it now, seven states that only have one clinic that provides abortion care. So 
increasing the amount of people who are able to provide the services, if it's nurse practitioners and um, midwives, that that means more people can get the care that they want. Another piece of this is also thinking about young people's access. Oh, absolutely. And thinking about how basically almost all the state laws that are around either uh, parents and abortion or, or young people and abortion are punitive. Really, they require parental involvement. And so there are 37 states that have parental involvement laws. And there's really only one jurisdiction that truly um, affirms the right of a young person uh, being someone under 18 to access abortion care, and that's D.C. Oh, wow. We're right here. <laughs> um, there are two states that, with a few hoops, a young person can get access to abortion and consent on their in on their own, essentially. That's Connecticut and Maine. But you have 37 states that require parental involvement. And 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 typically, if um, the parent is not involved, there is this court process and that could be worked through. And the, the issues here are, one, laws don't legislate family communication. Mm-hmm. So when a young person says, I cannot talk to my parent about this, they have very good reasons for doing so, and we need to trust them. So that in and of itself tells you that these laws are bogus. And then this idea that you have this workaround through the courts, this workaround has been documented time and again as being completely useless. Courts don't know what they're doing, or if they know what they're doing, they can be very hostile. And at the very least, this is a burdensome process on the young person. It's scary. It's intimidating, and it's insulting to their decision-making abilities. And so one piece of this is also to maybe repeal or modify these laws around minors' access or young people's access to abortion care and also ensure that they have the services that they need and support. That's great because I know oh – God, now I'm not going to remember, but it was a couple of years ago. Arkansas? No. Somebody was making their uh, judicial bypass so much more complicated. Alabama. Alabama. Oh, it was so close. Was working to make their judicial bypass so much more complicated for young people where they would just virtually not be able to access it. Well, yeah, that law um, actually allowed the judge in, in the adjudicating the case to appoint a lawyer to represent the fetal, fetus's right. interests. And it also allowed the young person's parents to know about the hearing. So it really circumvented the whole point of a judicial bypass right. or a waiver from the – getting a waiver from the parental consent requirement. So, yes, um, the ACLU brought a case against that and at least – you know, now there isn't any sort of lawyer for, for the fetus itself. But I have heard good news that some states are working to fix their parental involvement laws. Yes, there have been some steps in that direction. Um, certainly, for some reason, young people's agency when it comes to abortion has been incredibly controversial for decades, whereas Young people have the right to contraception care. They have the right to STI care. They have the right in many places to pregnancy-related care, to put their children up for adoption, to have, you know, to provide medical care for their children, to make lots of decisions, in other words. But when it comes to abortion, this country has not really affirmed that and, in fact, works against agency and autonomy. So, yes, it's very exciting to see when states are introducing bills that remind us that really grant that authority back to young people because 
we need to trust them and they can make the decisions that they need to. Well, it's always wild to me when you hear them arguing that kids aren't mature enough to decide if they can have an abortion, but the alternative is then that they're mature enough to have a pregnancy and continue the pregnancy. Inherently contradictory, isn't it? Right? Like, it just blows my mind every time. So what are some of the other things that states could do to access, to expand access to care beyond just abortion, but maybe even abortion? So I think uh, it's really critical that we talk a little bit about the affordability of abortion care. You know, one of the biggest barriers to to access uh, in the U.S. is affordability. If you think about it, abortion is usually an unanticipated expense, and it can, you know, an abortion itself can cost hundreds or thousands of dollars. Of course, we also know that associated expenses um, related to accessing care uh, really up that price tag. So the cost of traveling to access an abortion, perhaps having to stay overnight, the cost of child care, um, the uh, cost, which is not just financial, of taking time off of work to access that care. So just like any other large unanticipated healthcare expense, insurance coverage can really mean the difference between whether or not you're able to access that care and whether or not accessing that care is something you can afford or something that fundamentally jeopardizes your financial security. And yet, at the federal level, the Hyde Amendment bars federal bars Medicaid coverage of abortion except in extremely limited circumstances. And we know that that is a huge barrier to access. There's work underway to eliminate the Hyde Amendment at the federal level. But in the meantime, states can use uh, their own state Medicaid funds to provide Medicaid coverage of abortion. Fifteen states have a policy to cover abortion in most or all circumstances. Um, and the remaining states can greatly improve access by adopting such policies to provide that coverage. We saw this happen in 2017 when the Republican governor of Illinois signed a bill to do just that. And then on the flip side, there's also private insurance coverage of abortion. And there are a number of policies and restrictions in place that uh, hinder private insurance coverage. In particular, um, at the state level, there are 26 states that restrict private insurance coverage of abortion. So another thing states can do is follow the lead of New York, California, Oregon, and Washington that all require private insurers to uh, provide abortion coverage. Great. Um, So just listening to that makes me think of one thing that I'm going to plug just because it seems like a good fitting thing is that if you go to Population Institute's website, you'll see our 50-state report card that uses amazing data from these lovely ladies in the Guttwacker Institute. Um, but it also does have – some of the things we measure are abortion restrictions in states, but we also do look at affordability. And one of the things we do look at is how states restrict coverage of abortion in their state um, and if they have expanded Medicaid or expanded their uh, – we haven't looked at uh, – if, if they allow their Medicaid to cover abortion, but we look at Medicaid for family planning, you never know. We could always add the abortion one in uh, maybe next year. But um, it's a good place to get a visual to see it. And also it also is a good visual for what Elizabeth explained at the beginning, which was seeing where the restrictions are, because you definitely do see like the states that are failing. So our red states very much in the south and then up through the Midwest, like it's really stark when you look at it to see the disparities between um, people's access. Yeah. When you think about access to abortion, 
you can almost draw a straight line north to south from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. And then it sort of spreads from there. And so it really does mean that if you're living in a place like Louisiana, that right now we know there are three clinics that are thankfully open in Louisiana. But if you are in Louisiana, that's still pretty limited care. And if you had to travel somewhere, you might be talking not just across state lines, but across into multiple states. So we really are talking about access being quite limited in lots of the in lots of places across the country. Yeah, you, when you really think about some of the states that only have one clinic, or it's not just them; it's the states around them. And so, if the Supreme Court decisions kind of flip and allows states to really force these clinics to close, you're going to have women who are going to have just absolutely not be able to access abortion. There's no way they're going to be able to travel such vast distances to access care. That's exactly right. And will exacerbate what, you know, is already a problem in that mm-hmm. access to care can really um, depend upon um, your circumstances and is more readily available to um, people with greater resources and the ability to the ability to travel, the ability to handle an unanticipated expense, et cetera. Okay. So how have we seen this kind of playing out on the federal level? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it's probably no surprise that many of the tensions that we've kind of been identifying playing out at the state level are in many ways reflected at the federal level. So, you know, the Trump-Pence administration has made it very clear that one of its goals is to restrict abortion access, and Trump certainly fulfilled the campaign promise um, when he succeeded in getting Justice Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court. This administration has also taken a variety of steps to roll back uh, reproductive health and rights, including um, when we're talking about abortion access, including putting um, processes in place to uh, restrict private insurance coverage of abortion. The anti-abortion leadership in the Senate also recently doubled down on that theme when they used a procedural mechanism to force a vote on a bill that would have made the Hyde Amendment, which we've been talking about, permanent and would have also um, further restricted private insurance coverage of abortion. They were unsuccessful and that bill failed on the floor, but it still is a clear signal that um, a, a clear signal to their base that they're going to continue this fight. And of course, even more recently, um, the president and anti-choice members of Congress have uh, been kind of using the bully pulpit to promote misinformation and inflammatory rhetoric about abortion, really in an an attempt to um, distract people from the proactive efforts that are gaining action in uh, that are gaining traction in the states. So there are very real threats playing out at the federal level and um, there are some serious potential consequences to those threats, but there's also a counter narrative to that story. You know, the House of Representatives offers an exciting uh, contrast where we're, you know, looking forward to the reintrodu- reintroduction of some significant pieces of legislation um, to expand and protect access to abortion. These include uh, the Each Woman Act which would eliminate the Hyde Amendment and other restrictions on uh, insurance coverage of abortion in public programs and also um, prevent interference in private insurance of abortion. And the Women's Health Protection Act, which would guard against many of the 
restrictions that have been passed over the last eight years that are focused on shutting down clinics and stopping providers from practicing uh, by subjecting them to medically unnecessary uh, requirements that prevent them from offering care. And there's strong momentum to take a real stand against the Hyde Amendment um, and other restrictions that prohibit abortion coverage. While these bills I've mentioned, you know, won't be enacted under this administration or this Congress, they've already changed the conversation at the federal level in recent years. And the pro-choice majority in the House has the power to build off existing momentum and take it to the next level. So just like we've talked about with regard to proactive efforts in the states, this can really shape the conversation and lay the groundwork for years to come. Yeah, and I think it's also worth pointing out, so yes, the administration has been really attacking abortion and their really inflammatory rhetoric right now is not just stigmatizing and wrong. It's also dangerous. It puts providers' lives at risk, and I think we can't leave that out. Uh, And two, the administration is not just attacking abortion. They're using abortion, and that's in scary air quotes, to cover any number of ways that they are attacking reproductive health care, most importantly, access to family planning services. Absolutely. It's a wholesale, you know, attack on the spectrum of reproductive health care. And abortion is one of the ways that they try to rally their base and kind of, you know, provoke provoke backlash against progress. Um, But we're really seeing the range of rights uh, under attack. And funnily enough, all those things are things that would maybe prevent the need for abortion. So comprehensive sex education, access to family planning, or things that women can use so that they don't have an unplanned pregnancy. I mean, they will still happen because people are human and contraception um, doesn't always work. So, uh, but they are important steps to take. Um, And so fighting against one just exacerbates the other. I mean, at the end of the day, people have the right to the full spectrum and the full range of reproductive health care and to access care at at any point that they need it. And so people should be receiving comprehensive education about all that includes all of their options, uh, you know, full and comprehensive access to, you know, family planning, contraceptive care and coverage, and, you know, the ability to access abortion care, uh, you know, as soon as they need it. Okay, so we've talked about some good news. And we talked about some bad news, but most excitingly, good news. So we always like to end with what can listeners do to fight back? So how can listeners get involved or what can they do around these proactive efforts? As we've been watching what's been unfolded over the past several weeks, specifically in in the realm of the pushback we've seen against the, the, the advancements that have been made in New York, um, the bill in Virginia, what's happening in New Mexico and Vermont on, in their state legislatures right now. And we're thinking about that overlay of the U.S. Supreme Court. Things feel a little tenuous, right? People, you know, and I can understand sort of that sense to kind of hunker down, right? And kind of hold on. And I'm, I'm literally kind of grabbing my hands here, right? Literally kind of hold on to what you have. But this is actually the perfect opportunity for us to put forth the vision of access to abortion and what that means being, you know, available and affordable and without stigma. And 
we need to hold on to the momentum and support all of those efforts. And it can be everything from your, you know, people's activism and advocacy to talking to their friends. And it can be on any level. It can be in their community, working with their abortion fund or their travel fund or their state legislature or nationally, and even making the connections between all of these things. That if you're working on the local level, making the connection with the national level and vice versa, because really what we don't want is what we've got. We've got a situation where Louisiana doesn't look like California and California doesn't look like Maryland. What we want is for people to be able to get the care that they need. And when we band together, we're unstoppable. Is there anything more to say to that? I mean, that's perfect. I've just got two big thumbs up over here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you, Megan and Elizabeth, for being here today. I think this was a great conversation to look at what's happening in the States and a lot of the positive work that is happening and can um, continue to go forward. Thank you. It's been really fun talking with you. Yeah, it's been great. And thank you. And thank you to all your listeners. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit our website at reprosefightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at reprosefightback. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.